On behalf of Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. So we're back in James this morning, James chapter 5. And our text for this morning is verse 12. So James chapter 5, verse 12. If you'll follow along now as I read our text. James chapter 5, verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. And that's it. (laughs) May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. Well, you look at that verse and you might be thinking, well, what is this all about? Well, this verse has to do with honesty, integrity, and truthfulness in our speech, which is very important because truth is a significant issue in the kingdom of God. God is by nature true and and promotes the truth. Titus chapter 1 verse 2 speaks of God who cannot lie. John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. God's word is infallible. God's word is true. It is the truth. And we as believers who, who, as James told us, have been brought forth by the word of truth are to reflect God's truth in our lives and in our dealings Uh, with one another. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, Paul says we're to be speaking the truth in love. A few verses later, he writes in, in verse 25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. He said in Colossians 3, 9, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, quoting from Psalm 34, 12, wrote, Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. And the Bible is just filled with exhortations to God's people to be truthful in word and deed. And so God is by nature true. His word is the truth. God promotes truthfulness. His people are to be truthful. On the other hand, Jesus said in John 8.44 that Satan is a liar and the father of lies. Satan does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And he promotes lies and error. He promotes untruthfulness and deceit. And you see, a person's integrity demonstrates whose nature they share and whose side they are on. Liars align themselves with Satan and against God and demonstrate they are of their father, the devil. Whereas believers who have been brought forth by the word of truth, they align themselves with God because they are of the truth and they are to walk in the truth and to speak the truth. That's what is expected in the life of a Christian and in the church. When we speak, what we say should be true. Our word should be our bond. 
But it comes as no great surprise that we live in a world of lies. And I believe everyone would agree there is a crisis of truth in our culture. I mean, that's really an understatement, isn't it? And this is because fallen men are basically liars. Children lie to their parents. Parents lie to their children. Husbands lie to their wives. Wives lie to their husbands. People lie to their employers who lie to them and often to the public. Politicians lie to get elected and continue to lie once they're in office to stay in office. Citizens lie to the government about their taxes. Educators lie. Scientists lie. Members of the media lie all the time to everyone. And with every lie, with every broken promise, distrust increases and the fabric of our society unravels just a little bit more. And it seems as though the whole of our system is built on lies. And as one man said, if everybody started telling the truth, our system would disintegrate. I mean, it's all built on lies. And of course, that's because it reflects its father, who is Satan. Let me read you what one commentator said on this passage. There was a time when Western culture was distinguished from other cultures by at least a conventional consensus that one ought to be telling the truth. But now there is a pervasive indifference to truth-telling, which has not only infected day-to-day conversation, but the most solemn pledges of life. Perjury under solemn oath is epidemic. The sacred vows of marriage are broken almost as frequently as they are pledged, And God's name is daily invoked by blatant liars as witness to their truthfulness. Many reasons can be cited for this. A popular culprit is the relativistic subjectivism of our day, with so many liars defending and excusing themselves with cliches like, what's true for you is not necessarily the same for me, or the appeal to the Supreme Court of self, my opinion is as good as yours, truth suffers. But the main reason there is a crisis in truth is that we are, in fact, congenital liars. Right in the middle of the string of depravity in Romans chapter 3, we read, their tongues practice deceit. Our untruthfulness reveals our condition. No one had to teach us how to lie. For all these reasons, there is a crisis in truth. And we Christians must not make the mistake of thinking the problem is only out there. George MacDonald, the great writer and preacher, candidly wrote to his father on December 6, 1878, I always try, I think I do, to be truthful. All the same, I tell a great many lies. His candidness says what we all must say in moments of honesty. Our situation is exacerbated by the calculated seas of deception which flood back and forth over our culture through its media so that we sometimes scarcely know what truth is. Many Christians today traffic in untruth, and some, tragically, don't even know it. James' teaching is a radical call to radical truthfulness. If heeded, this call will set us apart from the rest of the world and and even get us in trouble at times. But radical truthfulness will also bring power to our lives and grace to a confused world. You know, basically what James is saying in this text is be different. He's saying, be men and women of integrity. He's saying, be men and women who speak the truth, whose word is true, whose word is your bond. You know, you'll keep it even if it costs you greatly. 
And before we get into the text, it's important to remember the context in which this was written, especially in light of the fact that it's been a while since we were in James. So you'll remember that for a number of weeks, we looked at a section in James that began in chapter 4, verse 1. And in this section, after contrasting the two types of wisdom, worldly and godly, at the end of chapter 3, James began to show how this worldly wisdom or this worldliness manifests itself in the lives of believers. In chapter 4, verses 1 to 10, we saw that worldliness manifests itself in the lust, the sinful passion and desire for pleasure and personal gratification. In chapter 4, verses 11 to 12, we saw that it manifests itself in speaking evil against and judging a brother or sister in Christ. In chapter 4, verses 13 to 17, we saw that it manifests itself in self-confident, boastful, arrogant disregard of God when it comes to our planning. And in chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, we saw that it manifests itself in the arrogant disregard of God when it comes to our resources, that is, in a wrong view and use of of our wealth. And you will remember in that passage, James was speaking to those in the church, specifically the rich, both believers and unbelievers who may be present. And what he had to say was a scathing condemnation of unbelievers, and it was a very blunt and serious warning to believers. In no uncertain terms, James denounced the wealthy landowners who foolishly hoarded their wealth and also abuse the power of their wealth through oppressing the poor by defrauding them of their wages and and mistreating them and using the courts against them and resorting even to the use of violence. And James warned them of the terrifying fact that the cries of these poor laborers had reached the ears of the Lord of hosts who would in fact act in judgment against them. And then in chapter 5, verses 7 to 11, there was a very noticeable change in James' tone as he, as he changed his focus from the rich oppressors to the oppressed, from condemning the unbelieving, abusive rich to comforting the believing, abused poor. In verses 7 to 11 of chapter 5, James dealt with being patient in suffering. And in those verses, he gave loving pastoral instruction to his poor and hurting readers who were suffering at the hands of the unbelieving rich. And he encouraged them to trust in God and to wait patiently, to to persevere and remember that in all their trials, they could take comfort in the indisputable truth that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful and he's coming again. And when he did, he would not only deliver them, but he would make all things right. And now as we come to chapter 5, verse 12, James begins to close his letter. Verse 12 is both a bridge to the final section of James' letter and a final example of the worldliness that must be avoided by believers. In verse 12, James is bringing the discussion of how worldliness manifests itself in the lives of believers to a conclusion with the command, do not swear. Do not swear. Now, when we think of swearing, generally what comes to our mind is cursing, you know, profanity, the the use of four-letter words, taking the Lord's name in vain. And certainly Scripture forbids that. In the third commandment states in Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. 
And Jesus affirmed that commandment when he taught us to pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. God's name refers both to his his spoken name and, and to his entire person. And we are to reverence God. And it is always wrong to use the name of God or of our Lord Jesus as, a, as swear words or exclamatory words. But James is not dealing with taking the Lord's name in vain, nor with crude or obscene language. It's not what he's dealing with here. That kind of swearing is referred to by Paul in Ephesians 5.4 where he said, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place. You know, rather, our speech is to be seasoned with grace. It's to be only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear Ephesians 4.29. When James writes, do not swear, He is referring to swearing an oath. In other words, calling on the name of God or a substitute for God to serve as a witness that you are speaking the truth or that you will keep your word or you intend to fulfill a vow or a promise you have made. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But suffice it to say that that swearing oaths was commonplace in biblical times and it was an integral part of Jewish culture. But in Jesus and James' day, the scribes and Pharisees had turned the, swearing, turned the swearing of oaths into a deceitful, hypocritical way of appearing to promise something that they had absolutely no intention of fulfilling. And this practice of swearing, false, evasive, deceptive oaths was commonplace. And so it's not surprising to find that it had become an issue in the church, particularly in the predominantly Jewish congregations to which James was writing. As one commentator said, this evil of swearing reflects the spirit of worldliness in one of its most reprehensible forms. James has in view the self-serving attempt to hide the truth by appearing to appeal to God to establish the truth. Such duplicity is totally inconsistent with Christian honesty. James wants his readers and you and I to know that such oath-taking is unnecessary among believers because our speech is always to be honest and truthful. And he is reminding us of the importance of being totally honest and trustworthy in our everyday conversation. And always. So James issues a simple command in this verse to stop swearing. And there are three aspects of this that we need to consider this morning. First of all, the command itself, and then the instruction, and then thirdly, the reason. But before we get to the actual command, notice how James begins the verse. If you will, look at verse 12. He begins by saying, but above all, my brothers. The use of the conjunction but indicates that some connection is intended with the preceding section dealing with worldliness. And the phrase, but above all, doesn't mean that this is the most important thing that James has said, but rather it it simply conveys the thought of importance. And so this is an evil which James is very concerned about. And so James says, but above all, or that there's one more important matter to deal with. There's one more expression of worldliness that I'm seeing that must be addressed. My brothers, my brothers. 
James has repeated the phrase, my brothers, throughout this letter. He speaks strongly about, about different issues. We've seen that. In fact, as one man in the church said, James comes out swinging and he just doesn't stop. And that's true. James is very straightforward. James speaks uh, very strongly about difficult issues. But James also had a pastor's heart, and so he, he does so with the consciousness that he's speaking to fellow believers, to those who also are in Christ. And for James, his relationship with Christ and, and the resulting relationship to the body of Christ, and that, that means everything to him. Because to be brothers and sisters in Christ goes beyond the, the kinship of race and culture. Now these people were, were brothers and sisters. The word brothers there is plural. It, it, it means sibling. So it could be translated brothers and sisters. And so to be brothers and sisters in Christ goes beyond the kinship of race and culture. These people were brothers and sisters because they were in Christ Jesus. And they were in Christ only because they had trusted in Him alone as, as Savior and Lord. And this title of brother or, or brothers uh, is used a lot today. It's used very loosely in our day. You know, those who belong to a fraternal organization refer to one another as brothers. Men in law enforcement or the, or the military refer to one another as, as brothers because they, they belong to a brotherhood. You know, they, they are brothers in arms. So that's understandable. But none of these uses of the word brothers has the rich and eternal meaning that James has in mind. In the sense of the word as James uses it, you're not a brother because of fraternal, vocational, or geographical association, or by acknowledging a few facts about Christianity, or because you have Christian parents. You are a brother or sister when God the Holy Spirit has regenerated you, bringing you to life to see your own sinfulness and separation from God and your impending doom and, and then awakening you to the beauty and the glory of the gospel and what God has done for man in and through the finished work of Jesus Christ, whom you by grace through faith have come to trust as Lord and Savior. Well, James was speaking to brothers and sisters in Christ, those who shared a common faith in the Savior. So let me ask you this morning, are you a brother or sister in Christ? Are you a brother or sister in Christ because you, by grace through faith, have trusted in Christ alone for salvation? That's a question to ponder. That is the most important question because it is of eternal significance. So James was speaking to brothers and sisters and he says, but above all, my brothers. We also see in this that the James' attitude was not one of condescension, but rather one of compassion. And he identified with them as one who also needed to guard his own mouth and speak the truth. I mean, for James, too, the, the, the matter of honest speech was of utmost importance. And notice now the command in verse 12, if you'll look back at the verse. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth 
or by any other oath. But above all, my brothers, do not swear. Now, as I said just a moment ago, when James writes, do not swear, he's not referring to profanity, crude or obscene language, the use of four-letter words, or taking the Lord's name in vain. He's referring to swearing an oath. And so this immediately raises the question, well, is James forbidding all oaths? And because of this verse, there are some Christians who would say yes. And so they would refuse to swear an oath or, or take a vow under any circumstances. So they would, they would uh, reject the idea of swearing an oath when testifying in court or taking public office or, or making vows in marriage, etc. Is this what James means? Well, no, it isn't. It's not wrong to take oaths. You say, well, how do we know? Well, the Bible doesn't forbid taking oaths. The Jewish system of swearing oaths that was commonplace in biblical times had its roots in the Old Testament. In a time when written contracts did not exist, oaths were used to bind agreements between people. To take an oath, a person would, would call on the name of God or a substitute for God to serve as a witness that they were speaking the truth, that they would keep their word, or they intended to fulfill a vow or a promise that they had made. And so in taking an oath, you were calling on God as witness to the truthfulness of what you said, but also as judge who would invoke his punishment if you lied and failed to keep your word or fulfill your vow. And to do this, to call God to witness the truth of your word, your, your promise, or your vow, and then to invoke his judgment if you lied or defaulted on that promise, is a very serious matter. I mean, God took this very seriously. How do we know? Well, in the Old Testament, he gave laws to govern the swearing of oaths and vows. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 12, the Lord said, You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. In Numbers chapter 30, verse 2, if a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Deuteronomy 23, 21, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. So the Bible does not forbid taking oaths, and it, it actually gives laws governing their use. And not only that, we, we have many examples in Scripture of godly men who took oaths. Abraham swore an oath to Abimelech to validate his claim that he had dug a certain well in Genesis 21. Later, Isaac swore a similar oath with the Philistines in Genesis 27. In Genesis 24, Abraham required his servant to take an oath with regard to obtaining a wife for Isaac. The Israelite spies swore an oath to Rahab the harlot in Joshua chapter 2. On a number of occasions, King David swore an oath. The people of Israel under Joshua swore an oath in Joshua chapter 6. And so these are just a few of the examples. In the Old Testament, there were also times when God required people to swear an oath. If you were caring for a neighbor's animal and it wandered off or died or, 
or was killed, you had to, to swear an oath that you hadn't laid your hands on your neighbor's property. In other words, you didn't do that for, for the meat or, or for money. You had to swear an oath to that. In Numbers chapter 5, if a woman was suspected of being unfaithful to her husband, God required her to swear an oath, which, if she had been unfaithful, would result in a curse from God. Numbers chapter 6 records the Nazarite vow, which set people apart to God. At other times, God actually encouraged the Israelites in the Old Testament to take vows in which believers dedicated themselves or something they owned to God. Psalm 76, 11, the Lord said, make your vow, or the psalmist said, make your Lord, make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared. I mean, this was intended to encourage Jews to take oaths and vows in which they dedicated themselves or something that belonged to them to the Lord. Other vows and oaths usually involved promising that if God answered a believer's prayer, the believer would offer a sacrifice to him or, or do something. I mean, when the, when the prayer was answered, the vow would, would then be gratefully fulfilled by offering an animal sacrifice to the Lord and, and worship and praise for his kindness. I mean, for example, 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 11 says of Hannah, And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and, and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. And that was the sign of a Nazarite vow. So Hannah was vowing that if God gave her a son, she would dedicate him to the Lord and that he would take a lifelong Nazarite vow of consecration upon himself. And you know the story. God did give her a son, the prophet Samuel. And she did just as she had vowed, offering a sacrifice to the Lord and then leaving Samuel at the temple to serve the Lord from that time on. More evidence that swearing oaths is not wrong uh, under pro the proper circumstances comes from the very fact that God himself has sworn oaths. Not because there's any question about his truthfulness, but uh, as commentators have noted, in gracious condescension to set an example of integrity for men to follow. God himself swore oaths, putting himself under obligation. Exodus chapter 6, verse 8, records God's oath that he would give the land of Israel to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their descendants. Deuteronomy 28, 9 records God's oath to the Israelites to set them apart as a holy people to himself. Luke chapter 1, verse 73, also refers to the oath which God swore to Abraham, our father. And then in Acts chapter 2, verse 30, uh, it's noted there the, the oath God swore to David. In Hebrews chapter 6, speaking of God's promise to Abraham, this is what we read in chapter 6, verses 16 and 17. Where people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an what? Oath. With an oath. In the Old Testament, God often used the phrase, as I live, says the Lord. And for example, in Numbers 14.21, but truly, as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. I mean, this is God swearing by himself, which he did in uh, numerous places in the Old Testament. 
And then in the New Testament, we have the Apostle Paul who took a vow to God in Acts chapter 18. He also took an oath of truthfulness by writing to the Corinthians, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. There he's invoking God's name to show that he is not lying. And Paul frequently called upon God as his witness. And then in Revelation chapter 10, verses 5 and 6, we even have an angel swearing an oath. Raised his hand and swore to him who lives forever and ever. And then finally, Jesus allowed himself to be put under oath. And we read about it in Matthew chapter 26, verses 63 and 64 where our Lord was placed under oath by Caiaphas, the high priest. And Jesus responded, in effect, taking an oath himself. And so the Bible doesn't prohibit swearing an oath in the name of the Lord. In the Old Testament, vows were assumed to be part of a committed life, but once made, they were not to be broken under any circumstances because to do so was a grievous sin, and it was to take God's name in vain. I mean, taking God's name in vain isn't just using it as a curse word. It's, it's using God's name flippantly and carelessly. And so swearing something to the Lord, Lord, I swear to you this day that if you deliver me from this, I will do such and such. Lord, if you uh, deliver me from this, I will give you such and such. And then you don't fulfill that? God takes that seriously. And if you don't fulfill it, it's a grievous sin and it's taking God's name in vain, and he will not hold you guiltless. So what's James forbidding then? Well, the problem James is addressing is the fact that in those days, the scribes and Pharisees had turned the swearing of oaths into a deceitful, hypocritical way of appearing to promise something that they had no intention whatsoever of fulfilling. In fact, in the Jewish Mishnah, and the Mishnah is a compilation of uh, thoughts and, and decisions made by the rabbis on the interpretation of various points of the law, but, but in the Mishnah, there's a whole section devoted to the subjects of oaths, and which oaths are binding, and which oaths are not binding. And you say, well, I thought all oaths are binding. Well, they're supposed to be. But the rabbis and the scribes and the Pharisees, they had developed this system where they artificially distinguished vows that invoked God's name and were binding from those that did not and therefore were not binding. So according to the rabbis, you could swear by your own life or by someone else's life or by the life of the king as Abner did in 1 Samuel. You could swear by your health or by some object. I mean, you could swear by your beard if you wanted to. I mean, you could swear by the temple or by the gold of the temple or by the gold of the altar or, or by the city of Jerusalem, but as long as you didn't mention or allude to God's name, well, that oath wasn't binding. It was all a big game. It was just a facade. And this evasive, deceitful swearing became a fine art. In fact, the swearing of oaths had degenerated into a system which indicated when a man could lie and when not. And so it all had the appearance of, of a binding oath. I mean, it all appeared to be so truthful, but it could be gotten out of just a moment later. 
And really, it's a little like kids who are asked to make a promise to do something or to promise not to tell some secret. And so they make the promise, but when they do, they have their fingers crossed behind their back, and that meant that the promise didn't really count. You know, the promise was null and void because they had their fingers crossed. Well, what the Jews were doing was, was a little more sophisticated than that, but it's essentially the very same thing. Something that had always been treated seriously and, and often sacredly had degenerated into just this farce, and it was, it was a disgrace. And it had become nothing more than a way to lie and deceive others while the whole time, while the whole time giving the appearance of, of piety and, and honesty and, and truthfulness. Oh, I swear by the gold of the temple in Jerusalem that, you know, whatever. Appeared so spiritual, so pious. This deceitful, evasive swearing was nothing more than, than a way to hide their lying hearts. And it had become so commonplace that James saw this great need to put an end to it for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the gospel, and for the witness of the church. And so he said, but above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. And what James is doing here, he's really giving them a piece of his older brother Jesus' mind. And I say that because James' words are really a condensed form of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 37. Why don't you turn there real quick? Matthew chapter 5, it's there in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 37. And here's what we read. Jesus is speaking. He said, again, you have heard that it was said of, to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now either James had heard that sermon, or he had learned about it from others, but either way, James had made Jesus' teaching his very own. And Jesus and James forbid making vows using any references to people or objects or anything in God's creation. Why is that? Well, because God stands behind everything. If we swear by heaven or by earth, we invoke God because God created them both. He created and sustains all things. All things are held together, held together by the word of his power. And the entire creation is God's. He, he stands behind everything. And so that means all oaths call God to witness because you cannot swear on any part of creation without it ultimately referring to God, the creator and sustainer. And Jesus condemned the Jewish religious leaders for this kind of hypocritical practice. Turn over to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. 
verse 16, beginning in verse 16. Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. But which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men. But which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Swearing an oath by anything in God's created order actually calls God's name as witness. It brings him into the transaction, and to do that is a grievous sin. And so despite what the hypocritical deceivers may have thought or intended, God considered their oaths as binding, and judged, he judged them for not keeping them. And so what does this say to us? It says to us, if there's anything that even approaches swearing by God or something else in our everyday speech, we need to stop it right now. And if you've made a vow to the Lord, then you better fulfill it. And what God requires of believers, according to Matthew 5 and James 5, is simple honesty. Jesus and James are calling for truthfulness, honesty and truthfulness in all that we say and do. And there are many cruel and, and wicked things that can be said with the tongue, but the most dangerous is falsehood and lies. And this, loved ones, helps us to see why God dealt so severely with Ananias and Sapphira for lying. But why do people lie anyway? People lie to get what they want. People lie to protect themselves from the consequences of their sin. People lie because they mistakenly think it'll hold a relationship together, so they rationalize uh, bending the truth. People lie to make others think more highly of them. People lie to get something from others. People lie because they're looking for an immediate payoff. They, they say what they need to say to get what they want to get. So if they have to lie or swear an oath, so be it. And people lie to help a friend. People lie to hurt someone intentionally. People lie to, to keep from uh, having to do things they know that they should do. And lying can be very subtle. It can be very subtle manipulation, you know, misleading. Lying can be a half-truth. You tell a part of the truth, but you hold back the whole truth. Abraham did that when he claimed that Sarah was his sister, and she was his half-sister. But he didn't mention that. I mean, he didn't mention that she also happened to be his wife. Half-truth is a whole lie. Then there's the white lie, those supposed innocent lies that they won't hurt anyone. When you call in sick to work when you're really well. 
And then there's exaggeration. Stretching the truth to make yourself look better or, or to gain sympathy for your cause. Then there's the silent lie. The, you know, the other person assumes something flattering about you that is clearly not true, but, but you don't even think about speaking up to correct it. Then there's the, the cover-up lie. You hide your own wrongdoing with the rationalization that it would hurt the other person too much to find out the real truth. And then the evasive lie. You, know, you change the subject or conveniently dodge the truth by not answering directly. And these reasons and many others are, are what people use to uh, justify their lying. And sadly, I, I know professed Christians who are known by people to be chronic liars. And loved ones, this should not be. A boy was on the witness stand in an important lawsuit, and the prosecuting attorney examined him and then d delivered what he thought was a crushing blow to the boy's testimony. He said, your father has been telling you how to testify, hasn't he? Yes, the boy said and didn't hesitate with the answer. Now, said the lawyer triumphantly, you know, just tell us how your father told you to testify. And he thought he had it. But the boy said modestly, father told me that the lawyers would try to tangle me in my testimony. But if I would just be careful to tell the truth, I could repeat the same thing every time. See, lying is a heart issue. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Lying is a heart issue, but ultimately people lie because they have no fear of God. And if Abraham lied about Sarah and David lied about Bathsheba and Peter lied about knowing Jesus, then loved ones, none of us are exempt from this temptation uh, to sin by lying. And so the issue here is telling the truth. Jesus and James call us to be truthful in all our communication. And these words are, are very much needed in our day. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. So that was the command and now the instruction. Rather than swearing an oath to assert the truthfulness of your speech, look what James says. Look back at verse 12. But let your yes be yes, and your no, be no. I mean, James is not saying that we should never sign a contract or make vows in marriage, take an oath of office, or swear to tell the truth in court. I mean, he, he's not saying any of that. And when a Christian uh, takes an oath in a court of law, he's not violating James' command. As, as one man said, he's simply accommodating himself to a recognition of man's fallen condition and of the fact that court procedure uh, would otherwise be impossible. 
But he also fully recognizes that he does not need an oath to guarantee his own honesty. His honesty grows out of his relationship with his Lord. So James is calling for simple, straightforward, honest speech. And he tells us that Christians are to be people whose yes means just that. Yes, and whose no means no. And James says, above all, he's saying above all, a Christian's word is to be dependable. A Christian's word should be his bond. When he gives his word, that is all that should be needed. People ought to know that he will fulfill his promise no matter how inconvenient it might become. If he says he's going to do something or, or be somewhere or serve in this ministry or take care of that issue, then he or she is going to do it for the very simple reason that having given their word to others before God, it would never even occur to them to go back on it and not follow through. Yet we are living in an age where believers will say things before God and then not follow through with it and think that there's nothing wrong with that. They're not dependable. They are not faithful. They are unfaithful. And their word is not their bond. I mean, they will say whatever in the moment with no thought whatsoever to fulfilling it. But what James wanted for his readers and for all believers is that we be men and women of our word. I mean, our yes should mean something to us. Our no should mean something to us because it certainly means something to God. Because God takes your word and my word very seriously. When you say you're going to do something, you need to do your very best to follow through with it. When you say you're not going to do something, you better not do it. I mean, in every situation, our word ought to be trustworthy. I mean, even our most casual conversation ought to be characterized by utter, absolute truthfulness. Because you see, loved ones, our conversation is not just to be believable, it's actually to be truthful. Whether someone believes us or not is not the issue. What matters most is that as a Christian, uh, we're to be a, who is a reflection of the character of Christ, we're to speak the truth in love, Paul said in Ephesians 4. But the problem with all of this is that we have gotten it in our minds that if we just come close to telling the truth, then that's enough. And we can play loosely with the facts and slide around honesty as long as the end suits our purposes. So the end justifies the means. But that's dishonest. That is deceitful and untruthful. And that kind of dishonesty betrays our Lord, who is identified as the truth, and he was recognized, will be recognized when he comes again as the one who is called faithful and true. Believers are to be known as people who keep their word, those who have such integrity that their simple yes and no will suffice for people. 
In the words of Paul, therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. I mean, we should tell the truth and honor God no matter what the consequence because we know that God is a God of truth. And we tell the truth because we believe God will honor integrity and honesty even if the world does not. And if we're walking by faith, if we're walking in the Spirit, we're going to strive to tell the truth in every situation because we know that God's way The way of honesty and truth is always best in the long run. And as the commentator I quoted at the very beginning of the message, as he said, if heeded, this will set us apart from the rest of the world and even get us into trouble at times, but radical truthfulness will also bring power to our lives and grace to a confused world. And so what James is saying here is that as believers, we should not have to take an oath to guarantee the truthfulness of anything we say. Why? Because we should tell the truth at all times. Our yes should be yes, and our no should be no. Our word should be dependable. We're to be people of truth, meant to reflect the character of Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. As one man said, honesty for a Christian is not the best policy It is the only policy. So let me ask you this morning, how trustworthy is your speech? How trustworthy is your speech? Can people believe what you say? And is is your word dependable? You follow through on what you say? Do you see harm in telling little white lies? Loved ones, if you've been guilty of being less than truthful in your speech, then you need to make you need to go and make amends with those that you have offended and those whose character and reputation you may have damaged. And then you need to ask the Lord to enable you to always speak the truth. But don't be careless with the truth. Don't be careless with the truth. Why? Look at the last part of verse 12. James gives us the reason we're not to play fast and loose with the truth. Why, James? Well, he says, so that you may not fall under condemnation. How believers speak was of great concern to James because what comes out of our mouths is usually a very accurate indicator of the spiritual health of our hearts because our words reveal the true nature of our hearts. And how people speak is the most revealing test of their true spiritual condition. And listen, people sin more with their tongues than in any other way. And so here James warns his readers not to play fast and loose uh, with the truth so that they may not fall under condemnation or fall under judgment. And of course, this brings to mind verses we've already read, Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. But perhaps the best comment on James' words is the statement of Jesus in Matthew 12. You brood of vipers. 
How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. You see, there is no truer indication of the heart than your speech. As one man said, if we practice a devotion to the truth with our lips, it's because the truth is what dwells within us. But a lack of truthfulness in our speech is a lack of character, and this lack of character will be exposed at the judgment seat of Christ, where we as believers will stand and give an account. Not for the purpose of our eternal salvation, but for the purpose of reward. And so this ought to motivate us all. This ought to motivate us all the more to prepare for that judgment by integrity, honesty, and truthfulness in our speaking. So loved ones, don't don't be careless with the truth. Don't be careless with the truth. Don't claim to know when you can't be sure. You know, don't make accusations without proof. Don't gossip and slander. Don't be careless with the truth. Because the word of God tells us liars will be judged. And if you play fast and loose with the truth, if if you uh, are a liar, you'll destroy your own reputation. You'll harden your own heart. You'll hurt the people you deceived. You'll destroy relationships. Your lies may tempt others to lie. Your lies uh, may bring God's discipline in your life and will if you continue. And so tell the truth. That's the point here. Tell the truth. Tell the truth. Be careful what you promise. Keep your commitments. You say you're going to do something, do it, even if it hurts, even if it costs you tremendously. And there are are, are very few people who will do that today. If they give their word to do something and then later find out it's going to cost them much more than they anticipated, guess what? They're not doing it. But I had a a wonderful example of keeping your commitment, even even if it hurts, in my father. Because I saw him more than once in business keep his commitment and keep his word, even when it hurt, even when it cost him something. Because he knew the value of a man's word. He knew what that was worth. And he valued his word. He valued his integrity. And I'm so thankful for that example. And you know, it's not easy to be a a totally truthful person today. But loved ones, it is absolutely necessary for the church and the world. As one commentator noted, the story of Ananias and Sapphira shocks us because they suffered death for such a small infraction. In giving to the church, they misrepresented what percentage they gave of their profits. Why death? After all, they did give, which is more than many people do. The answer, he said, is the church cannot prosper with deception among its members. Because deception wounds the body of Christ. And it's a sin against God. And this is why Peter cried to Ananias and Sapphira at the moment of their deaths, you have not lied to men, 
but to God. You see, loved ones, truthfulness is one of the greatest needs of the church today. The church needs people who not only refrain from blatant lying, I mean, that should go without saying. The church needs people who are truthful and whose word is dependable. And Paul says truthfulness is necessary for, the, for growth in the church. In Ephesians 4.15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So we are literally to be truthing in love. You know, speaking and, and doing truth to each other in love. This is how the church grows and this, this is what the church needs. And how the church needs this. And I'm not speaking just about this church. I'm speaking about the church. Every church. So what, what can we do to promote this kind of truthfulness? You know, a yes that is truly yes. A no that is truly no. How, what can we do to promote this kind of truthfulness in our lives? Well, let me share with you a few things that I came across uh, in my study. Number one, we need to recognize the sinfulness of lying and deception in the body of Christ. We need to recognize it's a heinous sin. And this is substantiated by the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira. Secondly, we need to remember that for Jesus, words are an outward sign of an inward condition. Again, he said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A continually truthful spirit will produce increasing truthfulness of speech. Thirdly, we need to understand that we will be judged by the words we say. Every word. Jesus said, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Number four, by the enabling and empowering of the Spirit, by the grace and strength that he supplies, and we who have been brought forth by the word of truth must reflect God's truth in our own dealings with others. Number five, we need to feed upon the word of God. You know, Jesus prayed for us in John 17, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. So when we discipline ourselves to feed on, on the word, we, we are filling ourselves with the truth of God. And we, we, will, uh, we then will progressively produce in our lives what God desires. And he desires truth in the inner parts. Then number six, we need to be very careful about what we say. If it's not true, then we ought to correct ourselves. And if we've been giving the wrong impression, then we need to straighten it out. We need to let our yes be yes and our no, no. So as we've seen, as we've seen throughout the, the book of James, 
He doesn't mince words, does he? Aims very straightforward. But that's because, number one, he loved the Lord. He loved God's word. He loved the church, and he loved the people of God. Otherwise, why the grief in speaking hard truths? And so James doesn't mince words, but it's coming from the heart of a pastor who loves his people and who wants, who wants the Lord's best for them. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. You know, may the Lord help us to be truthful and dependable, that we might reflect the character of our Lord and Savior to a dark and dying world who desperately needs to see the truth in action, and even more importantly, they need to hear the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we want to thank you uh, once again for your word and the book of James and just how powerful it is, how powerful the truths it contains are, uh, just how it, it smacks us right between the eyes, so to speak. But Lord, as, as, as someone has said, it hurts so good because we realize that this is an indication of how much you love us. And you love us more than we can comprehend. You And you love us so much, you're not willing to leave us the way that we are. And so you've given us your word to instruct us so that we might know how to live in a way that is pleasing to you, so that we might, as Paul said, walk in a manner worthy of our calling. That we might be the the light and salt that you've called us to be. That we might be the the light in the darkness. So Lord, may we be men and women of truthfulness, integrity, and honesty. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray these things now, asking them in Jesus' name. And for his sake and glory, amen. Amen. of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. 
or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palo California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you. Grow.